if it's the case that we're just these partisan hacks who are just using our reasoning to make things worse, yeah, we're doomed. Right? We can, what do we have to do? We have to make people less partisan. We can't. How are you going to do that, right? It, it actually is a positive message because, in theory, we could, in some contexts, make people less lazy. Welcome to the On Wisdom podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Listeners, thank you for standing by us through difficult times. I'm struggling through the psychological trauma of Brexit at the moment, so I do appreciate those kind reviews to show that what we're doing is is helping the world in some small way. We have a very exciting episode today. It is episode 15 and excuse my language but it is entitled wisdom bullshit and beliefs uh we have very special guests we have gord pennycook with us today gord would you be able to start by just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do sure um so i'm an assistant professor university of Regina, uh, in the hill of Vien school of business i'm actually a business prof now but don't you know hold it against me <laughs> um i do research on what i like to call is kind of like the science of uh Human stupidity. So it's kind of the opposite of what you guys are talking okay, about. Right. Um, but of course, the opposite pole is of the same thing. Sure. Um, down of wisdom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, maybe I'm, I think I'm just a bigger asshole than you two. That must be what it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. But, so, yeah, so I'm interested in things like, you know, false beliefs and uh, why people fall for bullshit. And more recently, I've been doing research on fake news and misinformation. So, um, so I was kind of thinking about what the overall idea of this episode was and how it related to wisdom. And it seems that your work is, it seems that what it's getting at from my end, uh, from an outsider, it's like, what is the best route to um, form accurate beliefs, right? That sounds pretty relevant to wisdom. So we're really pleased to have you with us. I wanted to start just by asking you, you, you've done a lot of work on this idea of how good are people at perceiving when someone's speaking bullshit. How good are you at that? Like just do, are you kind of quite cynical and you can usually see through, you know, uh, scams and things, or if people are just telling you tall tales, or are you just as bad as the rest of us? <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, part of the issue is that, uh, it's hard to tell how good we are <laughs> yeah, because, point, yeah. you know, the classic Dunning Kruger thing. So I feel like I'm good at it, but everybody feels that they're good at it. I, I, I will say that doing research on the topic has my kind of, uh, hackles up as it, as it were. And there's actually been cases where, that whole business about the what's the kid's name that uh, that there was this um, protest in Washington and he had the Make America Great hat on again uh, and he was like mm-hmm. um, yeah you know yeah, chastising yeah. the elder and all that kind of stuff you know I, I almost you know piled onto that like everybody else but I stopped myself uh, because I you know now do research on the kind of like ease at which these things transmit and I thought there's there's got to be more to this so I'm just mm-hmm. gonna like hold off and uh, and uh, I think I was kind of vindicated in that case. So, so that's kind of encouraging that the work you're doing, because often when we speak to academics, they say, you know, they do all this work, they go out into the, to the world and it just sort of falls out of their head. Um, but it's encouraging. Yeah. This actually seems to be changing your, you know, your, your ways of perceiving the news, uh, to a certain extent. I have to spend all this time getting the content for the, for the actual studies. So that means I have to go through and read a bunch of fake news and hyperpartisan news. And so like, I think just the act of doing that might help someone identify as long as they know that's what they're doing. Of course, yeah, <laughs> you don't yeah. want to like be encouraging people to do that just for kicks. Right. Igor, how, how, how about you? Are you kind of, do you have a good bullshit detector? So I have to also apologize to my mum for all this swearing because my mum listens to the podcast religiously and she's also quite religious. So apologies for the profane uh, language over to you, Igor. I'm not sure if I have a good bullshit detector. Some people say I do, but maybe that's just because my reactions can be very direct and people sense that I, think of everything as bullshit. But I was just actually uh, saying that uh, 
when you ask Gord about how he came up with the topic, I thought always, and this is just my uh, secret belief, Gord, is that when uh, the reason that Gord started studying bullshit is because I gave a talk at Waterloo, my job talk, and then he thought, well, that's bullshit. And so that's <laughs> <laughs> because it came at around the same time. So deep secret to our listeners is that Gord was a graduate student at the University of Waterloo. I think you started before, uh, just a year before I 2010. arrived. Yeah, yeah, just a year or two before I arrived. Uh, and yeah, exactly. So that was around the time when I gave the talk. And then the topic <laughs> of bullshit emerged. And we never worked together. Yeah, so Gord was always considered this prodigy at the department. It's a really a privilege to have him on the podcast now and see also how his career has unfolded from that moment on. Well, thanks um, for saying that. But yeah, I can say that it definitely was not a result of you. Uh, <laughs> well, too bad. I mean, I thought it would have been cooler. That's quite a claim to fame, yeah, for sure. But I don't that's know right. that, I, that I don't. That doesn't mean that I didn't think it was bullshit. That's just me. <laughs> okay. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's uh, dive straight into this topic, the topic that made you and some of uh, your colleagues at that time at the University of Waterloo world famous. So you got the Ig Nobel Prize. For some of our listeners who don't know what Ig Nobel is, it's uh, an award. Uh, Gord, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it's an award that is given by uh, the uh, student body, I believe, at, the, at Harvard uh, for uh, some of the most profound but, in a way, strange studies. Gord's award was for uh, a paper on profound bullshit receptivity or, or, or receptivity of profound bullshit. I guess uh, it depends on how you frame it. Is that sort of uh, the right uh, way to describe the ignoble court? It's actually given out by a separate body. This oh, it's uh, a separate the, body. Okay, yeah, the yes. Institute of Improbable Research. It's called. Uh, it just happens to, that they hold it at Harvard. Every oh, year, I see. So. I see. I see. So, can you tell us a little bit more about this work? So, I mean, okay, maybe it was not my talk, but what instigated you to study pseudo profound bullshit, and what is pseudo profound bullshit in the first place? There actually is. You know, people often ask about what is the backstory for some project. This one has a pretty clear one, and it's just. I was on Twitter and I saw this website called wisdomofchopra.com. Here's so the forth. connection to wisdom. Here we go. Yeah, there you go. yeah exactly. Yeah, there you go. That's why I'm on And on um, next week's episode, we have no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so at this website, so uh, the backstory is Deepak Chopra is this uh, new age guru. He's, he's got, I don't know, he's, I think he probably has more followers on Twitter than all the psychologists combined uh, wow. do. Um, he's, on, he's been on Oprah or whatever. So he's, he uh, writes books about things like, quantum consciousness and, you know, all, you know, a variety of kind of uh, jargon-heavy, difficult-to-understand things, but that sell really well. And so this website, what it does is it just takes the, the buzzwords from his Twitter feed, um, right. consciousness, attentionality, et cetera, et cetera, and then it just puts them together randomly in a sentence. And so, it, you know, so it creates just a word salad out of the words that already were created into salad on his Twitter feed. And so... I, you know, I looked at this and I said, I wonder if people would actually think that's profound. I'm a psychologist. I get to check things out when I see that. And that's, that was basically how the study got started. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and so pseudo-profound bullshit is just, is just a simple way to, to refer to what that, what that is. So basically the, the term bullshit is not just a fun way to cuss because, you know, cussing is fun, but mm. um, it's a technical term. There's this book by Harry Frankfurt, Princeton philosopher. It was titled On Bullshit, which is actually available online. It's actually really just more of an essay that they, they put into a tiny little book. Mm -hmm. And so in the, in the essay, what he says is that bullshit is different from lying. He just defines what bullshit is as a separate kind of category of things. Lying is something that you do if you want to subvert the truth, but that implies that you care about what's true, right? But if you're bullshitting, what that implies is that you don't care about what's true. You just, 
you're just trying to get someone to pay attention, buy a product, uh, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. You're trying to convince someone to vote for you, um, mm-hmm. et cetera. And so it's a different kind of class of information. And these random sentences are like perfect exemplars of that because they were constructed randomly and therefore literally without any concern for the truth, right? They're just random sentences. But it's, so it's interesting uh, that you say that in Frankfurt's interpretation, there's almost like an attribution of, uh, of some intention uh, to spread misinformation. It's kind of almost leads to the second topic. Uh, that's not really what you said, right? Like you just looked at uh, uh, just random sentences, as you said. There's that's the, right. Uh, so I'm not actually that concerned with how one might philosophically define the term bullshit. Mm-hmm, right. I just needed something to name the thing that we were looking at, right? So this is actually, it's kind of similar, I think, to how one would use wisdom, which is actually a kind of large category of possible things, but you need to organize uh, in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we use the term pseudo-profound bullshit to, you know, distinguish it from, like, bullshitting in a pub. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of other kind of types so of bullshit. You must have been pretty pleased when you came across this because this is a way of sort of creating things which shout you know they have the structure of a sentence so they they look like they could mean something but you know because they've been randomly generated by a computer there definitely is no intention in them so that's, that's a pretty useful tool in your field right yeah for sure and also it's like just for the listener i'll give an example so right. one example is wholeness quiets infinite phenomena you know uh, mm, that's those are just random words put together but you can see it's 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 a super interesting psychological phenomena that we can we so easily look at these really kind of complex sentences and just feel like we know something but then you know if you reflect on it you realize that there's nothing there really Uh, i mean unless there's something that you construct and the the interesting part of it is that like in a certain sense people thought when i was using the term that i was calling people stupid and i already started by saying i study the science of human stupidity so maybe i'm i'm you know causing people to make that inference myself but there's it's not an error in any kind of strict sense like you know if you if you read a sentence that is random and you think that it sounds great you know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And in theory, it's just, as long as you know that that's a random sentence and you're just reading Mm. into something, you're the one that's putting meaning on that, not the person who created it. Right. Mm. That's, that's quite a heavy point, really. That's like, that almost speaks to the whole sort of nature of reality, isn't it? Like that you create the meaning (laughs) about the world rather than existing out there. Um, but yeah, sorry, I'm going off topic. (laughs) So who is most likely to fall prey to bullshit? So you studied not only if people do that, turns out, I believe your finding was that they do, but there's also a differentiation between different sort of the individual differences I could explain who is more likely to think of this wholeness, quiet, infinite phenomenon as something that's really profound and meaningful. And those who say, well, that's just nonsense. Yeah, that's right. So like you could imagine it being the case that people who are really kind of reflective might find more meaning in it, right? They would, you know, they put all this effort into like trying to discover right. what, the, what the deep meaning of it. That's not what we find at all. In fact, the people who mm-hmm. are more reflective are just like, this is stupid. That doesn't, the sentence doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think partly what it is is that people who kind of rely on their gut feelings, who are a little bit more kind of automatic in the way they think, you might say, um, right. they're more intuitive. They just assume because there's something there that sounds good, it must be something profound, right? Mm-hmm. It's just a, a simple inference that they make. And that, that drives most of it. Uh, it seems to be that, uh, that most of the people are just kind of like, they're reading it unthinkingly and they're just kind of moving on. And so, you know, and it's also the case that many, not many people are like, their lives aren't changed by looking at these sentences, obviously. And so that's what drives most of the, of the, of the action and people's responses. Were they presented these phrases just with any sense of who said them? Because, you know, like, this kind of idea often you see quotes on the internet and people attribute just about any quote they want to Einstein because it means people take it a bit, a bit more seriously. Um, it, what's, you know, if you present uh, a quote to someone in, in a vacuum, 
is that sort of a bit sort of unfairly it's not really how we come across information in the world yeah it's true i mean we you know it's circumscribed in a sense although we have done follow-ups so like um deepak chopra could be referred to as a guru which is not really something that people put a lot of faith in not most people at least um but you could also call him a scientist if you wanted to like he he has some affiliation with and he, he has published some some actual scientific articles that are you know collaborations with other people or whatever doesn't matter and so we did a study where we just like said these are set random set these are we didn't say they're random here's are some sentences they're from scientists and some are from gurus mm. uh, and then of course the same you know you counterbalance them so that you know the there's all right. random sentences one way or the other they will rate the ones from scientists as being more profound than the ones from the gurus right mm. uh yeah. unless of course you're into people you're like into gurus then it then you can see the opposite mm. thing right um yeah so it, it definitely does matter it's just you know it's not all the thing that matters. There's other things that matter. People's actual perceptions of the sentences and so on as well also matter. So, so I want to go back to this uh, cognitive reflection. The really interesting uh, phenomenon differentiating uh, people who are more subject to believing that this bullshit is profound than those who are not. The test uh, is a very interesting test. It's about, you know, you presented some intuitive math-based basically problems, but uh, there is a trick in all of those problems where the immediate reaction to the problem is wrong, right? And does that get really at reflection or does it get really more the sort of being subject to a gut feeling? Well, I guess in, my question in general is, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the role of this cognitive reflection test in the study of um, pseudo-profound bullshit? And uh, what your thoughts are on the actual process that uh, differentiates those people who are versus are not subject to believing Deepak Chopra quotes? So there's there's kind of a an easy story and a difficult story in terms of the. I think it's true for everything in psychology where we, we have a kind That's of true. a yeah. way we describe something, and then there's there's a lot more going on, right? So the the simple thing with the the cognitive reflection test is that, and not all of them are math. I'll give another example, one that's easy to understand because you don't need math, which is you're running Great. a race. And mm-hmm. you pass the person in second place. What place are you in? All right. Don't ha- don't answer because you might get it wrong. But you, people say people say that you're in first place, but of course you're in second place because you pass the person in second place. I mean, when you visualize it, you see only the person that you're passing, mm-hmm. and then that means that you're in first place. But there's actually somebody in front of you that you're not visualizing because that's yeah. not part of the question. That's not about um, maths, is it? I mean, that's yeah, pretty simple yeah. math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, but the idea is that you you stop and reflect on the original like some initial response like the really thing that's interesting for me the most like central aspect of this is that you have to question a response that seems adequate to you at first blush right Mm -hmm. you have you have to kind of question intuition and this is why i'm looking at beliefs because we have to people some people are more likely to question their beliefs and that to me is probably the same thing right they if you're if you're questioning um your intuition on some silly math problem that you get in a psychology study you're probably gonna be more likely to question your deeply held religious beliefs, for example, or, uh, or question whether a sentence is profound or not. But I, mm-hmm. just one, one thing that leaps out at me is that these problems, these cognitive reflect, reflection test problems, are like, they're quite peculiar, aren't they? And most problems, you would probably get the answer with a more sort of, you know, most problems aren't trick problems. Do you see what, you know what I mean? So often, yeah. nine times out of ten, your sort of instinctive reaction might be right. So would it, is it kind of fair enough that people tend to go with their first response because unless you've fallen into some sort of psycho- psychology experiment so most problems aren't sort of uh, constructed to trick you i think that so that's a great point and the the thing that i tend and i think this is maybe one of the bigger differences between my kind of research program and, and igor's focus on wisdom is that 
I, I try not to focus on accuracy in that sort of way. That is like, mm-hmm. um, the CRT is interesting to me because it kind of elicits a sort of process that has consequences right, right. for things mm-hmm. like BS. And so, um, despite having said that I researched the science of human stupidity, stupidity, I think about it as in terms of the process that in some contexts may produce stupidity, but doesn't mean that people are irrational like that is I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want to like, right. um, I don't have, I don't have a claim in the, the great rationale, rationality debate as it was, because, you know, our intuitions by and large are accurate. You know, if I, if I had to stop and reflect every time someone asked what my name was, that would be extremely like inefficient uh, way to process things. And so yep. to, to me, I don't, I, I just kind of wash my hands from that, uh, that aspect of it. <laughs> very, very wise of you. <laughs> <laughs> I read your New York times article, which was kind of saying that there is this, there's been a lot of um, coverage in the, in the sort of media that, people are, are kind of incapable of reasoning essentially and that we we have uh, beliefs or already you know we have emotional we emotionally sort of gravitate towards a position and then we there's this motivated reasoning which comes after the fact so reasoning is really just like building a a, a pleasant house around this sort of emotional idea we had in the first place and that's that's really sort of been on the ascendancy but you're saying no that's not what you find so could you tell us a little bit about these two camps, you know, uh, the sort of motivated reasoning camp and then what you're, the angle you're coming at it from. Um, because I think most people that I'd speak to, they'd think, oh, yeah, no, I, I've read something recently. It's all about motivated reasoning. Um, so it's kind of nice to re- <laughs> read your article, which is sort of saying, well, whoa, whoa, there, let's just dial that back a bit and, and uh, take another look at this. So, yeah, I'd love to know a bit more about that. Yeah, so th- someone said once that uh, there's kind of like two classes of surprising results in psychology. One is people are extremely stupid, and one is that people are extremely smart. <laughs> and so, and so, this motivated reasoning kind of line is is the extreme version of people are stupid, which is that right. this like unique faculty that we have to reason that has gotten us, you know, the technology that we're using to do this interview, for example, yeah. um, actually in at least some contexts completely backfires. There's some evidence for this. So I'll, I'll give, I'll give some like, just so there's a bit of background for the, for the listener mm. in the context of climate change, for example, in America, people who are uh, more educated, more science literate, more analytical, more numerate, et cetera, are more polarized in the context of climate change than those who are less. So uh, that right. is Democrats who are smarter, essentially are more likely to think that climate change is a problem. Republicans who are smarter are less likely to think that is a problem. And so the, the idea is that what people are doing is they're just using their intelligence their reasoning to convince themselves that the thing they want to be true is true. They're just better at mm-hmm. engaging in motivated reasoning, mm-hmm. um, which might be true in some contexts, but I think it's probably only exceptional context. And so what we did is because of this past research on climate change and some other like really complicated scientific issues, we, people were writing op-eds about fake news being in this category. And I was like, well, I think we need to do some research on that to figure that out. Right. Um, right. And the results couldn't be clearer. It's just, there's no evidence whatsoever in anything that we've ever looked at uh, in this kind of space that that there's this this is extended motivated reasoning process people who think more about it just do better people who are more effective are just better at discerning between fake and real news it's completely clear it's the clearest like answer i've ever gotten from a set of studies in my life i think so mm. um yeah so how does that so what's going on with the the previous research you mentioned then because you're saying you've you've re-looked at is this a different kind of story or different that people are better at in certain kinds of stories working out which way to go or is it you know why is there this contradiction in what you found and this research around the the climate change example yeah that's a great question i think that it depends so that is it's 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 because of the type of uh content involved so think about climate change for example the smartest layperson still does not really understand the underlying science behind climate change right because they're not climate scientists and so 
what uh, one has to basically do in that in that kind of context is decide which expert to trust, right? And, and it, mm-hmm. it would require some skills to figure out, you know, what makes somebody a good expert and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that kind of gets washed out uh, in the kind of political polarization of the United States and so on. In the context of fake news, the stories are stupid. They're constructed explicitly, first of all, to get people's attention. And so they'll say, you know, uh, what's one example? One is uh, Obama's daughters were arrested in Russia because... Uh, because of something, or he, I had he was no idea. Is that true? That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Like, that, but there, there are things that, like, if this was true, I surely would have heard of it, right? right. Or like, that's a, a super unlikely thing that catches my attention, but doesn't make that much sense if you think about it. And so, th- if you if you think about how much effort it would be would be required to like convince oneself that that really illogical thing is true, that would be a lot of effort, and people just don't think that much about things. You know, the the bigger problem on social media is that. What happens when you go through Facebook is it's just pictures of dogs and babies, and you're kind of just scrolling through with your mouth open, and then you see a, you see like a fake news headline, and then you share it without thinking. That's that's a much I think more straightforward and likely uh, explanation than people stopping and being like, "Well, that surely is true." Then they spend all this time, you know, convincing themselves that it is true. It's just it just doesn't seem very likely to me. So I'm, I'm kind of taking away from that the climate change question is just. It's just really hard f- f- to work through the reasoning to write, you know, properly. You'd need to look at charts and data and things to kind of completely independently work that through. Whereas you're saying the the kinds of situations where people do a lot better um, is when it's quite a simple problem. Yeah, that is. It doesn't require yeah. a huge amount of thinking to like get to the the more sensible conclusion. Right, and if it's yeah. a really really hard problem that re- requires a huge amount of thinking, then people may well, in that exceptional scenario, fall back on biases perhaps yeah and one way to think about it is like what is it that initiates the thinking in the first place right right um, and so when somebody sees some sort of uh, fake news story that is counter to what their you know political predilections might be then they might think about it more you know in that case they don't really need to think that much about it because they already probably dis- disagree with it in the context of like climate change the the same kind of mechanism might happen but you just don't have anything to think about because you don't know what the content is because you don't have the expertise to actually like engage in the reasoning about the topic you end up just reasoning about, you know, why should I believe this? You know, who's who's making the claim, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I saw a title of your paper, which was about this topic, which is sort of half pleasing message. It's the title was people are not, <laughs> people people are lazy, not biased. And I was like, yes, is that good news? That sounds like good news. Maybe it kind of it's it would suggest that we're not as all as kind of um, not as hopeless cases as as much as we thought. Exactly. I think that, and this actually goes back to what I said before about like, we're not disputing that people make errors and that they're, you know, they're sharing fake news, which is the thing that's happening and that people are politically polarized. But what you do about it uh, depends on how that happens, right? Mm -hmm. If it's the case that we, we're just these partisan hacks who are just using our reasoning to make things worse, then we can't appeal. Yeah, we're doomed, right? What do we have to do? We have to make people less partisan. We can't, how are you going to do that, right? But it, it actually is a positive message because in theory, we could, in some contexts, make people less lazy, right? We, this is, I think, part of the reason why this podcast exists. We can actually improve the way we think about things, and we're not hopeless for that reason. Is, is, um, I mean, people being lazy is still a, a big problem, isn't it? Oh, for sure it is, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's not an intractable one. Right, and you think the other way of looking at it is, yeah, it's, it's more sort of doom-mongering scenario because there's no way back from that. Okay, so we're just lazy. That's good to know. Um, I would like to move on to the theoretical meat of uh, this whole discussion. So we talked about bullshit uh, and how some people are just intuitively react to it by believing it. 
of buying it, whereas uh, maybe the better reaction would be to take a step back and reflect a little bit, just a little bit, and then realize, well, that sentence actually didn't make sense. We talked about partisan, often partisan fake news and just general climate in politics and and role of political convictions uh, just a few seconds ago with their different perspectives of it. Again, there is a role of intuition and your intuition is like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I should just forward this to somebody. Or you think a little bit more about it and you say, oh, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. Two black girls in Russia? Really? I mean, how does that often happen? It's like Obama would definitely not send his daughters to Russia. So this gets at the meat of uh, the so-called dual process theories, which are very popular in psychology these days, but have also been criticized recently. And uh, you've been engaged in sort of back and forth, uh, Gord, uh, I think, with some of the uh, critics. So I would like maybe to spend a few minutes talking about it. I think it would be of interest specifically to a scientific audience, but also because this idea of relying on intuition versus reflection is so important to anything related to wisdom or decision-making and so on and so forth. So why don't we get started with just, Gord, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what may have motivated John Barge and uh, Melnikov to critique the dual process theories as well as what motivated you to react? By the way, thank you for asking about this. I've done you know, other interviews. No one wants to talk about this, and I love talking about it, so uh, I appreciate it. I think it's an important topic. It's yeah, a very important topic. Um, um, Gord, would you just spend 30 seconds explaining what the dual process theory is? Because sure. some, some people might not have heard of it. Right, so <laughs> the... Right. Uh, yeah, fair enough. So, so dual process theory is just... I mean, really, it's an amorphous blob of theories, but the, the underlying idea is that we can make a fundamental distinction between at least one type of process and some other type of process on at least one dimension, okay? So my distinction that I make in my own research, that is my dual process theory, is focused on autonomy. That is, there are responses that come to mind autonomously, that they, just, they, they uh, result directly from experiencing some sort of stimulus in the world, or some cognition uh, is also possible. So, for example... Two plus two equals what? Four just pops into your head. You don't decide to answer four to that question. Right. Just pops into your head. Um, but we also have a more controlled type of processing that's just not autonomous. 32 times 87, you have to decide to answer that problem, right? Nothing is going to pop into your head, but we, mm-hmm. can, we have some aspect of our cognition is discretionary, essentially. And so that's a dual process theory. Now, the, the, the broader thing is that everybody also has other distinctions that they've made between, for example conscious and unconscious processing, or associative versus rule-based, or serial versus parallel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so what had happened in the 90s is Kistanovich and other people um, decided to write larger papers saying, look, at everybody's saying essentially the same thing, and so we'll just call them dual system theory. theory. And now we have mm-hmm. system one that does, uh, it's intuitive, and it's associative, and it's, uh, it's autonomous, fast. and it's fast, and it's whatever. Uh, and then we have system two that's slow, and it's all the opposite things. And so that's, and so that was now became this giant amorphous blob that's dual system or dual process theory, whatever you want to call it. And that was the kind of focus of uh, Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. And that's the thing that is basically absorbed by most people who, who don't do research on the topic, but, you know, who mm. uh, might have... The general conception of dual process theory is this, is this now, this amorphous blob. And so the, the Melikov and Barge paper is uh, a way to thwart that amorphous blob. Basically, they're saying is that, like, it cannot be the case that, based on the evidence, that things that are unconscious are always... Uh, autonomous, for example, although I don't think they use autonomy, right. they have four different... Yeah, I don't think uh, they do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, you know, whatever. They, it, things that are intentional aren't always... Unintentional aren't always unconscious, for example. And so what that means is 
this amorphous blob cannot be true. But the, but the problem, and this is why we criticize them, is that nobody said that it was true. The amorphous blob was not a theory. It was just an organizing of a bunch of theories. In fact, Melikov and Barge are themselves due process theorists. It's actually implied within their article because they say they are distinguishing, for example, between conscious and unconscious things or intentional and unintentional things. Those are individual. Okay. That's a dual process distinction that they're making. That's essentially why we did the, uh, the commentary. There's more to it, but that's, that's the general footnotes of it uh, or quick notes of it. It's interesting because John Barge made a career out of uh, theorizing and doing research on unconscious process and differentiating, making a big point that they're so different from conscious process. This is, this is, you can imagine our surprise when we saw a, a criticism of dual process theory in Trends in Cardinal Sciences authored by John Barge. Yes, that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, the, the critique is very strong, right? They, they talk about uh, a lack of empirical support. They uh, talk about that uh, you already mentioned that there is no coherence between these different levels and that there is no sort of underlying consistency that would be representing some kind of latent processes uh, both on the system one and system two level. Uh, so what is your take on that? So you just say that, that, that nobody, nobody actually ever claimed that that's the case? Well, it's not that nobody's ever claimed it. It's just that the field has moved on from that like probably like a decade ago. Yeah. So that, so what had happened, just the history of this is basically Stanovich and those people, they, they created this amorphous blob. And then there were criticisms that were of the same nature of this one uh, by Melnikov and Barge, uh, for example, by Magna Osman. I think it was in 2006. And then Jonathan Evans, who's a big uh, person in the field, yep. and Stanovich, they started writing a bunch of papers saying, no, 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 no. Like, this, but, like dual process theories is kind of a process claim. Like, you, you, and the, really the important aspect is there's this kind of default response that comes to mind. Uh, and it could be, a, you can be that you're concerned with autonomy, and that's why it comes to mind quickly. But that doesn't mean that everything that everyone's always said about dual process theory must be true at the same time. So I'll give an example that makes more sense, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. If I think that autonomy is this really important distinction, if something is autonomous versus not autonomous, that's a that's a kind of dual process theory. But it it stands to reason based on the kind of features of what it means for something to be autonomous that autonomous responses are probably faster than controlled ones, right? And so what I'm saying is therefore that speed is a correlated feature, and this mm-hmm. is what Stanovich and Evans put together in 2013. They finally they've been writing separate papers trying to defend dual process theory. So they were like, maybe if we write one together, people will shut up about it. <laughs> and so they, they, wrote a, they wrote a paper in Perspectives in 2013 saying there's a difference between the defining features that you use to distinguish between two different types of processes, like autonomy, for example, versus control, and then the correlated features like speed. And so then, you know, people in the field like myself, we just moved on from this debate. That's now we've, we have this kind of thing that's clarified that aspect. We let's, let's, you know, just kind of carry on. Um, and then now years later, Melikov and Barge wrote a paper critiquing the old idea and, in my view, kind of ignoring that, that aspect of it. And that's what our reply was, that they were just, they just kind of brushed over this idea that there's defining versus correlated features. And they said, well, people are still kind of thinking about it in this old way, so they're still wrong and maybe we should just get rid of the theory. Uh, and, you know, uh, that's, I guess, their imperative, but I disagree. Just to all listeners, maybe, what may be important here is that, um, you know, the notion of dual process, no, no, as Charles pointed out, the probably uh, listeners outside of psychology would not know these terms, but they do know Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, and then they start probably to aggregate, oh, so thinking fast means that I just from my unconscious, it's my intuitive response, it's in this part of the brain, there is no intentionality or something like that. Oh, thinking slow, oh, that's very reflective. And, and so they may start aggregating it in a way how it may have been represented 15 or 20 years ago in science, 
but the science moved on. What can we do about that? Yes, I mean, th- that's the other thing about this, which is my, I'm a little bit conflicted about the paper because it really is a, a good contribution, but I just wish they wouldn't have tried to make it more than it is, which is, you know, that is, uh, instead of saying people are making some, a lot of people are kind of have this kind of false idea about how cognitive processes are kind of correlated with each other and necessarily associated with each other and in right. some stronger versions of that, that we, you know, this doesn't make any sense, so we shouldn't do that anymore. But then they said, oh, and also dual process theories, we have to get rid of them or whatever. What it, what it kind of implies is that the dual process theory is not some specific theory that somebody has, but just this general conception of what dual process theories are. And I don't think that we need, as scientists, we can't be we can't be like blurring the lines between those things because it's going to become confusing, I think, if we're battling conceptions of things instead of just specifically what theorists have said about them. It sounds, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, to me, it sounds like a science communication problem rather than a research right. problem, you know, like, because me as an outsider, I'm very familiar with the system one, system two, Dan, Daniel Kahneman thing. And a lot of people that I would speak to would, you know, that's how they would kind of describe modern thinking on on, uh, on the brain but you know it, obviously the people that are doing this research have moved on a lot by then uh, but it doesn't seem that that message has necessarily permeated beyond that sort of realm so it seems like some something helpful perhaps could come from this and in, in sort of perhaps getting the public more up to speed on where the research is at maybe i mean more out of more likely that we'll have a a positive outcome from this podcast than from that particular paper, I think. Um, um, yeah, so the outlet matters. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's not. It was not the right outlet. And also, mm-hmm. and also, it's just like the paper itself was written in such a way that it would be difficult to glean that. I think because it was mostly they didn't point to any other alternatives for the way that people are doing research. They just mm-hmm. burned. The, they burned the house down, but didn't say mm-hmm. you know show that there's another house being built over here. That's why we got our rackles up about it, and that's why we had to do the reply because we were like, if you guys read our research, then. I mean, you guys, as in the, the broader public, then, you know, we wouldn't have this, we wouldn't be having this conversation about, the, um, about like, the, the correlation between features and all that kind of stuff. And so, like, you know, <laughs> part of it is, is us being like, we, we exist, you know, I mean, it's not just <laughs> Kahneman, it's hard to, like, it, to exist in a world where there is a best-selling book yeah. written by a Nobel laureate that, which, right. is, which is, by the way, it's a great book. It's a popular yeah. press book, though. It's not, it wasn't a book, it wasn't a psychological theory. He was just, he was distilling a lot of things in a simplistic way. Uh, so the public could could understand it, and I don't actually have any qualms with the way that it was done. It's just that that is not the epitome of the of the best theory in this area, uh, certainly, mm-hmm. um, and no one would expect it to be. Uh, not even Kahneman. Maybe Barge just got upset that Kahneman uh, took a step back <laughs> from some of the uh, priming studies that he featured at the beginning so prominently in the ooh, book. That's ooh, yeah. It's, it's, he did, he <laughs> didn't do that. He did that, he, did that, he did that pretty prominently too. So that you know, that, that's he, right. He, if he didn't apologize for the like simplistic nature of the dual process theory that he proposed, he he was <laughs> apologizing for having reviewed research that didn't replicate. So, yeah. So that last section was pretty uh, as theoretical as it gets on this podcast. Um, so yeah. I'm kind of bring it, kind of keen to bring it back to um, the the non people who don't have tenure who might be listening. Um, uh, <laughs> what what um, I'm kind of interested in this this idea that you feel there are certain ways that are better at arriving at uh, accurate beliefs than perhaps some of the other ways that have been suggested in in press of late. So what can we take away from this research that people can actually do? So you're on Twitter or whatever. Are there sort of, I don't know, like thinking patterns or habits that people can practically use, you know, today that will help them get better at, you know, arriving at accurate beliefs? Well, I, you know, there's a simple thing, which is stop and think, but it's not, it's not so simple mm. as that. We have to actually use our intuitions 
to help us think, which is when something, so the, so what my dissertation was on was that, you know, the kind of underlying cognitive processes that trigger thought, and those are intuitive processes. There's some, there's some kind of uh, signal that uh, our brain is actually pretty good at giving us that there's a reason to stop and think. The problem is that we ignore it too often. And so that's, that's something that we have to pay attention to. So that is when you're going through social media and there's a, there's a slight lingering of doubt, you have to give yourself enough time for that to catch up, basically, uh, which, is, which is, you know, still basically stop and think. But it just doesn't, you have to get into the habit, basically, of, of not jumping and clicking uh, immediately and certainly, you know, retweeting things. And this is, you know, the same thing as that example I gave about the, the kid in Washington who was, you know, wearing the, yeah. the Trump hat or whatever, right? That's basically my only kind of uh, advice on that. It's a problem, though, because quoting your paper again, you know, people are lazy, aren't they? So how, <laughs> so it seems what you're suggesting is people need to be less lazy, but, but they are lazy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and this is also one of the kind of more tractable problems in terms of like the research that have been done on, has been done on debiasing, which is you can get people who are reflective to be intuitive. Like they can just kind of turn that off and then they can just kind of rely on their gut feelings. Mm. It's really hard to get people who are intuitive to be reflective, right? Because, um, mm. you know, to, to listen to the instructions, to do what they're told, they have to start thinking about that stuff. And I would be a little bit surprised if somebody who was particularly intuitive was you know, listening to us <laughs> right now. And so that's, so maybe that's fine. So that is like, you know, people who are reflective aren't, are still making lots of errors. And so there's a lot of room for a lot of people to improve. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to improve. Uh, and, you know, no psychologist can ever claim that uh, they have some sort of solution that would be able to do yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. And what about say at a broader level, you know, like where funding should be going, should funding be going into certain kind of critical thinking programs or do you have any thoughts about that broader level? Right. I think there should be way more funding that goes specifically to me. Uh, wait, yeah, wait, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Crowdfunding. Actually, I, I, that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, I don't, so the, 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 I think to me, the biggest gap is there needs to be a, a stronger connection between the kind of psychologists that are working in this sort of space and people in education who, so right. mostly, I think there is probably a lot of room to, to, to move in terms of the way that people think, but it's not when they're adults, right? This is, Mm -hmm. uh these these need to be done at earlier stages but you know that's not my area of expertise one thing i will note though is that we have some research indicating that there sometimes simple solutions can work in some contexts so in the context of fake news for example people don't really reflect that much when they're sharing things but if you get them to think about accuracy and we do this by just using the simple kind of prime we just give them one headline at the start of the study and say do you think this is accurate or not it has nothing it's just for a pretest, and then they go through and do the actual uh, study where they're just being asked to whether they would be consider sharing a bunch of fake versus real news headlines. If you ask them about a headline versus you know control condition where they're not asking anything, if they're thinking about accuracy, they're far better at discerning between fake and real news uh, when they're sharing things. And so you know there's room to work there. And I think what right. I think needs to happen is we need to know if these psychology studies kind of work in the wild that you know actual on actual like platforms. And so you know funding is one thing, but having uh, collaborations with social media companies mm-hmm. is, is yeah. something else entirely. And there's a, there's a wealth of possibilities out there, but they're just not being mined at present, um, unfortunately. I would have thought the, the um, social media companies, you know, with all the sort of hot water they're in, they would be sort of quite warm to that idea, you know. And any, any researcher who's kind of got a brainchild about how you could do some meaningful, useful research on their platform to help their platform, you'd have thought they'd be, that would be an open door. It's pro- if the problem is that the other um, thing that's happening for them is that uh, data privacy and the Cambridge Analytica thing, and mm, so they're, yeah. they're um, and so they're they're actually I think probably doing less 
collaborative research with researchers uh, uh, now than they were before because it's. it's I don't know about that. I, the the whole uh, SPSB, the uh, main conference for social personality psychology, this year the program had a Facebook logo on every single page, uh, <laughs> and and uh, quite a bit of representation, I think, from social media. But you're probably right that uh, there are some things for which social media companies want to have expertise of experts in social behavioral sciences. And there are other things where they don't or where they don't want them to do research on. So, and then because of the data privacy issues and uh, just, I mean, you know, the way how the funding structure for, not the funding, but the revenue structure for these companies is based on, um, they may not be as willing to change some of their ways. Yeah, that, and actually, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. So like the stuff that we, and we have been, we've talked with Facebook a lot about this sort of stuff, but what we're proposing is uh, making it less likely that people will share content. Yeah, <laughs> um, right, right. Yeah, good luck. Uh, <laughs> and so th- they might be really interested in having psychologists help improve their product. We're not right. doing that. I mean, we're helping improve it, but not in the way that they think about improving it, I don't think. So that, that that's probably one other element that's relevant here. What about if you, um, as a Facebook user, you got a score based on the accuracy of what you'd shared? And then that could like build your sort of, you know, trustworthiness on your. Page. Oh, it's, it's it's almost like the Chinese government score that they have for each citizen. <laughs> Do you know that, that they have a I've trust system that, yeah. score? Yeah, yeah. yeah all right, well, okay, I I thought it was a good idea. You're now saying it's kind of like the Chinese government. <laughs> <laughs> really well, maybe out. it is a good idea that Chinese government is introducing. I'm not yeah, sure. Maybe. I mean, like, yeah. Yeah, benefits and disadvantages. Yeah, the the problem is that Facebook does not want to be the arbiters of truth. They don't. Yeah. Uh, like they they offload all fact checking to third party companies, um, yeah. so that they aren't ever determining it. We do have one paper though that's about um, uh, Facebook using its or ha- having its users help them inform the algorithm. Which is if you if you ask just people from Mechanical Turk, we use this other source called Lucid, yep. to like rate the trustworthiness of various news sources. They're pretty good at doing it. In fact, the correlation between like layperson ratings of uh, uh, the trustworthiness of news sources like New York Times versus Breitbart versus some fake news source, and the correlation between that and actual professional fact checkers is 0.9. And so, oh, wow. they're, so they're they're actually pretty good because most like really low quality sources are unfamiliar, and people do not trust unfamiliar things. Uh, mm. And so yeah. they could they could do that to inform the algorithm, uh, and that would mm. be one kind of simple way to help things. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Gord, thank you so much for today. This was profane um, and profound uh, and has given me a lot to think about. I feel kind of optimistic about the future. I'm pleased to hear that people are not hopeless cases, but they are terribly lazy. So there's still lots of work to be done. Thank you so much for coming on On Wisdom. We hope to hear that you've come up with some way of solving all sorts of bullshit problems in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Gord. My pleasure. And no, don't hold your breath on that one. Yeah. Thank you. And now it's time for the summary. Today we spoke about fake news, misinformation and false beliefs, specifically why do some people fall for bullshit when others don't. So when presented with meaningless statements or or pseudo-profound bullshit, it's the people who go with their gut and are more automatic and intuitive that rate them as profound. People who are more reflective tend to say, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Recent research into motivated reasoning suggests our unique facility for reasoning, which has served us so well in building the modern world, in some contexts completely backfires. It's not that we reason to a conclusion, which we then passionately defend. Rather, we choose a side based on our emotions and then rationalise an argument to defend it after the fact. However, when it comes to discerning fake and real news, this isn't the case at all. Reflective people just do better. 
It seems that complex issues, which can't be assessed directly, people then choose which experts to believe and end up choosing their own side's experts, leading to partisanship. Fake news, on the other hand, is often so transparently daft, it would require far too much effort to convince ourselves that it's true, so people just don't bother doing that. Sharing fake news could be in part due to laziness in addition to motivational biases. We also briefly spoke about dual process theory and its various controversies, and we spoke about the fact that the public has a fairly outdated idea of the thinking processes in the brain being split rather neatly into two groupings of system one, automatic, intuitive, fast, unconscious, and system two, deliberate, rational, slow, and conscious. The majority of scientists working in this area have let this model go a while back, even if the public is not quite ready to do the same. Finally, we spoke about how to apply all this research the next time you're online. All our thoughts are triggered by intuitive processes. Our brain is telling us to stop and think. Too often we ignore these messages and move on, when really we should be paying a bit more attention to this lingering doubt and reflect before we lazily retweet. Thanks for listening. Until next time.